I'm Jen Taylor Skinner. This is Wagatwe Wanjuki. And this is Black Women 2020, your one-stop shop for 2020 election coverage from the perspective of Black women. This is a special episode of Black Women 2020. We talk with Tammy Sawyer, who's currently commissioner in Shelby County in Memphis, Tennessee. And she's now running for mayor of Memphis. And Tammy's election would be historic. If elected mayor of Memphis, Tammy Sawyer would not only be the city's first woman elected mayor, but she'd be the first black woman elected mayor of Memphis. And the election is coming up soon. It's this Thursday, October 3rd. So if you want to support her, you better do it fast. Go to TammySawyer.com. That's T-A-M-I-S-A-W-Y-E-R.com. I believe Memphis deserves new leadership. And that leader is Tammy Sawyer. The three of us, Bogatwe, Tammy, and myself, we have a conversation about the role that race and gender has played in this election. We also talk about how the media generally portrays and treats black women candidates. And the conversation gets really real. So I hope you enjoyed this one. Here we go. Commissioner Tammy Sawyer, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to join y'all. Yeah, thanks for talking to us. I know you're just a few days out from your election, your mayoral race in Memphis, which would be historic if and when you win. I know this. I say that all the time. You're going to win. <laughs> Thank you. Yep, four more days. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I wanted to talk to you for Black Women 2020 because this is a really historic election for Memphis and for you. So when you win, you will be not only the first woman mayor for Memphis, but the first Black woman mayor. What is it like running in a town like Memphis as a Black woman? It has been a insane year um, running as a Black woman with a voice for change. You know, I listen to all of y'all's old shows and I'm just nodding when you all talk about like the media framing of women candidates, especially the women of color. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. Like the things that people get away with, the normalizing of racism. But as soon as like a woman of color says something, it's like, let's shut her down Um, or make her explain. But, you know, we allow white guys to get away with doing whatever because they're white guys, you know. And so it's just been an interesting race, Um, you know, like. It's not, I think one of the things that's been helpful is I know I'm not alone. Like I went through a lot of body shaming. I'm a plus size black woman, but I watched like Stacey Abrams go through that. And so like, I knew that this was just par for the course, which sucks, but it's the case, you know, um, you know, I went through just like people not saying my name, trying, you know, the whole, is she electable? As far as a non-incumbent, I've raised the most money. I'm the only person who's put out a a platform, period. And so, you know, like, how are we not electable? You know, so I'm like watching all of these conversations on the national level. And it's almost feels like, you know, it's happening here on the micro level. But it's just crazy because it happens everywhere. This ties into something I've been wanting to ask you. So I, I first actually found out about you on Twitter And, um, you know, social media can be a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in terms of like your relationship to social media as a black woman and as a candidate with all these, you know, the extra stuff that can come with it. Yeah, I mean, I started on Twitter pretty early. So like for me, Twitter, just like most people before there was a black Twitter, you know, I was just on there with like random tweets about my day or what I was going to do that night or, you know, things like that. And as Twitter evolved, so did most of the users as did I. 
just pretty much as the world changed, as our generation got more politically invested, you know, Trayvon Martin and in the movement for Black Lives and Trump getting elected, all of that pushes how like Twitter changes and I like changed with it. You know, one of the things about that is that even as you evolve, there's now this transcript of your evolution. And it's interesting because, you know, I could say one thing like two weeks ago, I said our local basketball team, our college basketball team is having their Midnight Madness event on um, Election Day. And it's not at midnight. It starts at like five or six. And I was just saying it's unfortunate that that was scheduled at the same time because the media coverage is going to be about is Justin Timberlake or Drake going to show up, not about are people going to get out and vote. And so people were like, it got retweeted by some ESPN guys somehow and all this other stuff. And it's like, well, maybe you're not doing what you need to do to win your race. And I'm like, no, that's not the thing. There's clearly a connection between how media frames local apathy in elections, but cool, you know? (laughs) So it's, you know, I used to be able to be like, I like oat milk and one person would be like me too. Now I'm like, I like oat milk and it's a whole damn debate, you know? Uh, (laughs) So it's an interesting shift, you know? And then someone thinks it's policy. Like, how can you say you like oat milk? We need dairy, you know, for the economy. And I'm like, Jesus, it's it's weird. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I don't know if you know this, but um, Tammy, so, you know, she was um, famous. (laughs) She became famous on Twitter. This is how you like came on the national stage was through Twitter with your Take Him Down 901 campaign. I don't know. Bugatti, did you hear about that? No. Do you want to tell her? (laughs) Well, I just, you know, I created uh, Take Him Down 901. Most of the activism that I did started on social media. Like my first ever uh, protest that I planned after Darren Wilson wasn't indicted for killing Mike Brown, I was on Twitter complaining about there nothing happening in Memphis. And somebody was like, so why don't you do it? And I said, fine, I'm going to do it. And the next day, you know, I organized my first protest. And so, like, I've always used social media, especially Twitter, to communicate what I'm trying to do. And then in Memphis, there wasn't as strong of, like, this activist and grassroots movement. And so I just was connecting to people and following people. And, you know, that's how I launched Take Them Down on social media, on Facebook, on uh, Twitter and getting people connected to that and getting people invested. I actually named Take Him Down after Take Him Down NOLA, which I found out about from social media because they are responsible for the grassroots movement to remove the Confederate statues in New Orleans, but they don't get any credit. Everybody talks about um, former mayor Mitch Landro's, you know, epic speech about, you know, why the time is now to remove the statues, but they never talk about the grassroots group, take them down NOLA, which actually was the reason Mitch ever even got to that point, right? So when I started like using social media to research how other cities had done their removal, that's how I found Take Him Down. And so we named ours Take Him Down 901 in honor of Take Him Down NOLA, which had been erased. And because like there's this social media transcript of the work that we did to get these statues removed and to build like this national pressure to get the statues removed in Memphis, that's why we weren't erased, having learned from how like NOLA, you know, the grassroots movement there really got undersold at the end. Um, And they still try to erase us. But like the proof is like in the tweets, you know. 
Yeah, that was the I remember that night because we talked about this when I talked to you for my other podcast um, about the, the video that night when they were taking the Confederate flags down and uh, not the Confederate flags. Jesus, I should take those down too. <laughs> <Yeah>. but the, <laughs> Confederate, <laughs> the Confederate statues down in Memphis. And it was just such an emotional night. You know, yeah. So 901 is the Memphis area code in case people don't know that. So that's why I take him down 901. That's what that means. But yeah. Yeah. But, you know, about the erasure, because I wanted to talk to you about who you are running against and, you know, how they treat women versus men and black women versus, you know, black women versus men. Right. Um, so you're running against Willie Harrington, I think. Right. And Jim Strickland and then some other person. I feel bad because I don't really know who he is, but I remember the <laughs> I remember the first two people because they were there. I'm from Memphis. They were there when I was a kid, like they were running Memphis in an office when I was a kid. And I'm thinking like, OK, how do people not realize that Memphis needs new leadership with, you know, the really high unemployment rate, right. the, you know, the crime rates that won't go down. And, you know, and, and also, by the way, I saw this video that they were interviewing all of the candidates and you were in there, Tammy. And, and it's, you just stand out, right? Because you're the only woman, you're a woman of color and you've got all these men around you. And then I think it was, was it Willie Harrington? He was like, oh, you know, I, I know this job, you know, I've been around for a long time and they know what I've done in office. I was like, well, you know, I wouldn't really run on that because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, and, and then again, another thing, they won't debate you. Is that right? Yeah. So there have been no debates in 2015. There were about 10 people on the ballot. They were all men and they had about five debates on every uh, local TV show and then even ones that weren't televised. So the current incumbent included, they all showed up to these debates. When we announced the incumbent, a older white male and Willie Harrington, who is the former, former mayor, who's a 80 year old black man who decided that no one can run the city but him, kind of like a king complex. He, um, you know, was like, she's a distraction. I refuse to debate her. You know, nobody knows who she is. And so the incumbent said if his two major opponents, me and Harrington, won't both be on stage, knowing that Harrington was never going to be on stage, you know, so that's how he copped out. So 2015, five major debates, 2019, none, not one debate. Every time we're live tweeting about the debates, the DNC debates, I'm like, there have been four Democratic Party debates for a race in 2020, and we've had zero mayoral debates in 2019 in Memphis. You know, we're a top 25 city. You know, our poverty level is through the roof. There are issues on the table that everyone deserves for us to have to answer, you know, for us to say, like, we just got the new poverty report. If poverty has increased again this year from last year, you know, we put 63% more youth in jail this year than last year. If it's not urgent enough with those statistics alone for people to hear from us, then what are you running to lead the city for? Wow. <laughs> Well said. <laughs> yeah, well said. It's just stunning to hear um, just how willing they are to silence, yeah. you know, to silence you or just not even you specifically, but just the idea that, um, you know, your voice is not as important. It, it, it really does trickle down, I feel like. Like I, a lot of times people are so obsessed with the federal election and like, you know, the top tier stuff, but like it also, it, it doesn't happen in a silo, right? Like, these things are happening on local levels as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't get how somebody can run on the platform of like, I know this job. I've done this job with a city with like so many visible problems. Right. You know, and like they're basically saying, like, I'm the incumbent and, you know, about incumbents. I was talking to somebody recently. I can't remember who it was, but we were talking about Ayanna Presley and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And, you know, there's this kind of this kind of division of, about, you know, whether freshman people, if they should challenge Democratic officials, because I think all of the people who are running in this race are all Democrats, I think. I think that the last guy whose name I can't remember is an independent or something. But, you know, the, the point that they made to me was that you will never have equal representation of, you know, people of color or women if you don't challenge incumbents because, you know, most of the incumbents are men and you have to challenge them if you want equal representation. Right. That's absolutely true. And, you know, people like with me, they said you could wait four years when it's an open race. But if I wait four years, then it's just going to be everybody's favorite guys. You know, it's going to still be the same sentiment, right? Oh, well, now it's so-and-so's turn and wait another four years. Your turn will come, right? So there's always going to be a male favorite. You know, it's just kind of like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. You know, we're seeing two really strong women, you know, who continue to be told that they're not electable, you know, for the presidential race for these guys who have all of these flaws, you know, the same types of like that should put them on the same level as the women. You know, we should be scrutinizing them as heavily as we scrutinize Kamala and Elizabeth Warren. And then that just trickles down to locally where we're always going to find a guy to stand up and be like, because he's a man, he's strong and he's bold and he tells it like it is. And he does all of these things and he's got a wife. And, you know, um, I think I've talked to you about this before, Jen. It's just interesting when you see the things that people throw at women candidates, you know, who's your husband, who's your pastor? Why don't you have children? You're 37, you know, don't you think instead of running, you need to go get married and like have some children? What's your sexuality? Uh, one guy told me like, I need to know what man to call when you get too emotional, you know, and, and like, oh I'm a city oh commissioner, God. you know, like that's the crazy part. I'm not like, I didn't just graduate high school and decide to run. And even if that was the case, I deserve that respect still, you know, but like I'm a whole elected commissioner, y'all. <laughs> wow. <laughs> a grown woman, a whole elected commissioner, <laughs> right? Like, all of that. And so it's just funny, you know, um, I had a friend come down from St. Louis to help campaign for the last few days of early voting. And she just told me, she said, I thought that these problems were St. Louis problems. You know, she watched the treatment of Tashara Jones in her mayoral race. She's like, I thought that was just St. Louis. And now I'm down here, you know, and I see like, we just don't love black women anywhere. And it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's funny because I think we talked about this too. Like, and I, it's hard to put my finger on this, you know, with Memphis, it feels like when, when you're there and when I live there, it feels like everything's OK when you live there, just because people keep voting in the status quo. Right. And so you don't feel like there's a crisis around you, you know, and I don't know what that is. Like, so I understand her perspective of saying like, oh, I thought this massage noir or, you know, these problems were only in St. Louis. I didn't realize that they were in Memphis, it's just, you know, it's because people are so kind of oh, I don't know, satisfied <laughs> because they've been told by these men that like, hey, you know me, it's safe. Just keep voting for me. Yeah, just keep voting for me. And like, 
it, it, we just sell people these dreams of like, and I saw this on Twitter too, speaking of Twitter the other day, where somebody said that black people are the only people who are taught that their issues, their suffering, their challenges are their own fault. And the only way to fix them is to work harder. And, you know, it's kind of like that whole bootstraps, you know, issue. We're told, oh, you're poor. To get out of this, you just got to work hard. No one can fix that for you. And we ignore the way that like generational wealth stacks up and builds generational poverty and how we continue to have this discrepancy. You know, I think I've shared like Memphis is 63% black, but only 3% of the wealth in the city is owned by black people. So that type of like, discrepancy tells you that this is all through a social creation and we have to stop thinking like that we can't make any change on our behalf we really have to get more aggressive about demanding that the changes be made that are owed to us Memphis you don't deserve to have like a bunch of shiny new buildings downtown if you're not going to take care of your people if poverty is going to continue to increase why are we going after all-star games like who are we interested in helping the most it, it makes me think about, you know, they say, oh, wait four more years. And, I'm, and it makes me think, like, what's going to happen in those four years? Can 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 the regular Memphis person wait four more years? What's going to happen to them? You know, it always thinks that, like, at what cost? That's, you know, my favorite quote is the James Baldwin quote, you know, accent and all. When he says, my father waited for your progress. My uncles waited for your progress. My children are supposed to wait for your progress. How much longer can I wait? For your progress you know like that to me is the quintessential question that black people should be asking white america yeah, that's a good quote yeah no i also wanted just to make another comment just like uh, just how like it can be the experience running you know as a black woman you talk about all these like invasive questions right it seems like it's mm-hmm. like you, it's like almost in the sense you become this public property that's like available for all these like intruding questions while the incumbents can kind of just like hide and shrink and mm-hmm. like take advantage of the lack of transparency um mm-hmm. Yeah, I just want to say, like, yeah, I want to know if that was like kind of on par with what you, what you've been experiencing. Well, you know, so like my one of my opponents dug up a bunch of my tweets from like when I was in my twenties, and mm-hmm. they leaked them to local media, and we know it was a leak just because of the way that it all came out, um, and so. You know, the things that the news had on the screen in the first, it, this lasted about three weeks. It, it was a three-week news cycle. You know, in the first week, they were reporting, like, tweets where I said things like, Jack, period, ginger, period, drunk sex. Why is that wow. on the TV of the 6 o'clock news? But last year, there was a candidate who had been convicted of abusing his wife. And when the person he was running against mentioned it, the news said we refuse to talk about that because they've they've reconciled and that's not our place. That has nothing to do with this race. But my like 25 year old like Jack Ginger and drug sex tweet belongs like I didn't you know, like that belongs on the six o'clock news. And we're going to talk about what that has to do with 37 year old Tammy today, you know, mm-hmm. um, And then it was just interesting because I had somebody call me and say, yeah, I had a guy tell me, well, he was glad to hear that you weren't gay. And I'm like, oh, my God, sexuality and my choices. And like I said, Twitter evolved. Right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, 2007 and 2008, when I was tweeting, it was about nothing. It was about what I did on U Street that night. 
and what I did at work that morning and wash and repeat. Right. Mm -hmm. And like to even use that when now I've like been on this ground doing like real game changing work alongside a lot of people and have like, you know, just really built an investment through my work and like you don't even and you, but you think these are credible news cycles like y'all my dad had to read jack ginger drunk sex over and over mm. on the tv screen uh, yeah but they yeah. protect ben you know i'm running against an incumbent who had an out of wedlock child in office when he was the former mayor with a security guard of wow. his wait which one was right? that <laughs> <laughs> You know, and so they won't report that. You know, mm-hmm. the the current incumbent had is a part of is being sued by the ACLU for surveilling um, activists because of you know a protest on the bridge. The news isn't talking about that. So like their personal and their political gaffes, they're not making it on the on the screen. But they have nothing to report about my political work, right? Because it's very well known what it's about. It's social justice oriented. It's about equity and equality. You can't poke a hole in it. So you're going to go back to 25 year old when I didn't know if I wanted to be a DJ, a cupcake baker or <laughs> president, you know, was dabbling in, in any and everything. And you're going to put that on the screen 12 years later. And so, like, that's what it's like to be a woman leader. You know, I always think about Megan Barry in Nashville. She made a big mistake traveling with her, you know, boyfriend at the time in the midst of an affair. But think about the men who have, like, just had their wife show up next to them and apologize, never been charged with a crime. You know, they charged her with a felony. Like, I I don't know about that. What is that? That must be local, local news. She was, um, Megan Berry was mayor of Nashville up until about a year and a half ago. And she was one of the first progressive female mayor, women, yeah, one of the first progressive female mayors in Tennessee, white woman. But she had to resign office because someone leaked that her bodyguard was also her lover. And, you know, they charged her with felony because his time that he was with her he was also charging to be your bodyguard. Oh, and yeah. That's sticky. And that's, you know, yeah, that sucks. But how many men have we watched? I mean, did Bill Clinton pay Americans back for the time that he was sleeping with Monica Lewinsky <laughs> while on the job? Right. So I just think like as women, we can't make mistakes. As black women, we definitely can't mis- make mistakes. And I think about how many black women who've run for office in just the last two years who've had to issue some type of apology or explanation. Stacey Abrams having to explain for her brother's past. Stacey Abrams having to write a letter to Forbes about her credit history. I know at least three other black women who are currently elected who have had to do the same thing because they try to use our credit against us. We are the most underbanked demographic in this country. No matter if we were born rich, middle class, or poor, we're more likely to end up poor in adulthood, right, than anybody else. And we're constantly having to be like, don't judge me for my credit because I'm a good leader. No one else has to do that. How many times has Trump gone bankrupt and we still haven't seen his tax returns? But we as Black women are forced. They'll find anything to use against it. And the sad thing is people will accept that and be like, oh, she's not perfect. Next. But there's not enough of us in supply. You can't keep throwing us away. Yeah, I know you're absolutely right. And I think about that a lot. And, you know, every time I see a black woman elected into some big position, I think, you know, oh, God, you know, I hope, you know, I wonder what they're going to dig up. I wonder, you know, sorry, I get nervous about that because, you know, 
white women or, you know, non-black women who are elected to office, they're subject to the same sexism and the same misogyny, right? But the thing is, is that feminists, white feminists will come to their defense and often not two hours, mm-hmm. you know? And I was writing about that. I don't know if you saw that tweet in the context of Hillary Clinton, you know, all the think pieces. Now, Hillary Clinton was mistreated during the 2016 election cycle. Whether you liked her or not, you you can't deny that, Right. And, you know, everybody wrote all these pieces about it after she lost the election about, you know, how badly she was treated. But I feel like when that happens to a black candidate, you know, or a woman of color candidate, you know, all the things that were said about, you know, I don't know, give me a good example, like uh, Maxine Waters, you know, when Maxine Waters had that thing, you know, at the beginning where I think it was she said something about Trump. I can't remember what it was. Right. Mm -hmm. And everybody was jumping on her, telling her to tone down her, you know, tone, tone down her rhetoric. You know, no one writes think pieces to defend Maxine Waters. Right. Or no right. one publishes them. <laughs> they just right. write in their diary. <laughs> no, well, I mean, if we think about the editors, right? Like, it's about, like, who chooses what is put out there and, like, who accepts what pitches and from whom. And, like, you know, New York Times, their version of diversity is for rich white dudes being like, eh, should we really impeach Trump? You know, like, all of those right. different, con- you know, all those little, like decisions really even by the people we never see those names we never really see like you know they make a difference that happened here someone wrote an op-ed about the media's framing of me and treatment of me as one the most accessible candidate you know and so when they sent it to the local paper they said we're not accepting any op-eds related to the mayoral race But they had published tons of op-eds framed around the mayor's message that there's momentum for everyone. You know, so all of these like wealthy white people being like, yes, we need equity, but our momentum is here now. We can equity takes time. And so they published op-ed after op-ed after op-ed supporting that point of view. But then when somebody was like, yeah, here's an op-ed defending Tammy and her work and her person. You know, they said, oh, we're not accepting any personal op-eds regarding the mayor's race. Right. The gatekeepers. That's amazing. You So they have a race for mayor. They have a historic candidate. And yet they don't want to publish any op-eds in relation to that. Right. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Wow. You know, I talked to you about I, I don't know if we talked about this or not. We'll go to it offline. But like I just started trying to publish op-eds like recently in the past year. And, you know, I think obviously because, you know, this podcast is evidence of that. I think about black women all the time. I think about black women candidates all the time. So that's what I write about. And I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, but it is really hard to get them published. And I started to think like after rejection, after rejection, I was thinking, you know, is it, is it because I'm writing about black women? Is it? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And how you write about black women too, right? Cause it's like, if you're going to write about black women to be, you know, to do the same old, same old, the whole scandalous thing where like, if a black woman is doing something consensually versus like an abuser, right? A white male abuser that's protected like that all, you know, it all. It all yeah. And it just plays out over yeah. and over and over again. I'm not the first and won't be the last. So I did want to ask you, and you can tell mm-hmm. me if you want to talk about this or not, cause this was upsetting to me. I know it was upsetting to you uh the memphis magazine cover where this this artist chris ellis i'm gonna name him say his name (laughs) where he drew this caricature of you which is really offensive so it was it was a caricature where he basically you know kind of in you know animated form a caricature form every terrible stereotype about black women that he could fit in like one drawing 
Right. And then he didn't apologize. Like he when when he was asked about it, he just kind of doubled down and he got even worse. Like he got even crueler, which this. Oh, anyway, go on. Yeah. I mean, just for me, I'll never forget the moment I saw the cover for the first time. Somebody texted me and was like, hey, don't say anything about this on social media. Let other people carry your water. We're going to fight this. It's so disgusting. And I was like, dang, well, what happened? <laughs> you know, I was in the middle of call time. It was kind of crazy, right? And so um, she said, oh, never mind. But of course, I then went and started Googling. And I saw mm-hmm. the cover and I just, I mean, I just started crying out of nowhere because I was just so shocked that this is what, and it wasn't because I recognized myself in the drawing. It was because I saw my name, you know, mm-hmm. and everything that, they, that that man like did to my face and my body. And then his first apology was like you said, he didn't apologize. He said the obese African-American female was drawn in the way she deserves. Oh my God. Um, you know, he, I have very lovely locks. I'm very proud of my hair, right? Because I went on a journey for them. <laughs> so I'm very proud of my of my locks. And he drew me with like four locks like I was Coolio. He like spread out my nose yeah, yeah. like I was pregnant, you know, took out like my middle tooth like I have really distorted my features. And yeah, I'm a plus size girl, but he added like four chins to my face. You know, there's nothing recognizable except for, you know, because of like the little pieces that he did include like I have freckles he put like three big moles on my face you know um and I've been drawn before people drew me for the campaign so I know that it wasn't like oh most of my drawings look like this it was egregious and you told us you doubled down and told us this is how you see plus size black women this is just how you see black women period you know, then to have that like be such a big debate, to watch people say that we were trying to get political clout off of it, to watch people say like we were making a big deal. Of course, everything is racist to Tammy and things like that. And I'm like, literally, it took maybe a week for me to be able to look in the mirror without like restoring with myself. You don't look like that. You don't look like that. I mean, I could see that image every time, like in the morning, you know, putting lotion on my face, getting dressed and just reminding myself, nope, this is not how people see you. This is one guy. Like it is mental warfare. And I do not say that loosely, you know, and I'm not like, it's not just me. I mean, they drew Stacey Abrams like that versus her opponent. They drew Serena Williams. They drew Michelle Obama, you know, but it's just like so harsh when it's hyper local and you're in a smaller town. And it's like someone that I'm like two people removed from, you know, would do this and say that it was okay. Not only that, this was Memphis Magazine. This is the biggest magazine, I think, in the city, right? On the cover. Yeah, on the cover of the magazine that has the city's name that I fight for every day. I mean, I remember crying and telling my dad this. I was like, I put my heart, I made a decision to stick in this and fight so hard for Memphis, fight for Memphians, to fight for Black people. And then just to like love a city so much and then its name just be attached to like this really harsh, you know, attack. It was, it was tough. It was tough to reconcile. Yeah. Memphis really needs you. (laughs) Memphis needs you. They do. Like whenever I hear you talk about how much you love Memphis, I just, I just really want you to win so badly because yeah. 
Yeah, and you do love it because you stayed. (laughs) My mother doesn't, you know, she would tell you I need to go. But, (laughs) you know, to her, it's like, if they're going to keep doing this to you, why do they deserve you, you know? Um, Mm. But I'm like, you raised me here. This is my home. Yeah. Yeah, it's opposite for me. They keep telling me I need to come back. I'm like, no. I got I have a, I have a kid and I have you know family here, so I have an excuse I can't come back now. <laughs> I guess, I guess what I was thinking was, was that because we were talking about representation in journalism, because I've been thinking about this a lot lately and thinking about the narratives and the people who control the narratives. And because I heard this interview with this um, with a black woman in the South talking about she was talking about Kamala Harris. And, you know, I'm not an idiot. I know a lot of people. I know a lot of black people don't support Kamala Harris. A lot of black people do support Kamala Harris. But regardless of what side you fall on. Right. Like you can still call out bias in journalism in that respect right and she said something like you know what i've read about her is right and that just struck me because i thought who is she reading right Right? she's not reading Mm -hmm. from somebody who doesn't have an unbiased lens right and so i was thinking like what either happens is you get negative coverage right Mm -hmm. or you're erased right is erasure or when they decide not to erase you then you get a cover like was on this Memphis magazine when they, you know, try to disparage and distort your image. Right. And you think about how that seeps in, right? Like people don't, I don't think people constituents and they shouldn't have to do this. They don't unpack how they got their image of certain candidates, right? How they got their images of certain politicians, especially black women. So you were looking at yourself in the mirror and you were personally hurt and you had every reason to be like, I am personally hurt on your behalf, right? But like the average person, it seeps into their subconscious and they may not ever unpack why they see black women candidates in that way, right? They're not going to make the connection to this caricature that they saw on Memphis Magazine in 2019. Right, right. They really won't. Or why they think that we're aggressive or why they want to police our tone. Where did you learn that from? Right. And even the words in the attached article, you know, were like, she's combative. She's radical. And we were like, what is this about? And the author tells us those are good. It's good that you're combative. It's good that you're radical. You want to be a game changer, right? Don't you need to be those things? I said, you would never describe that to a white man who's aggressive. You would never give that to a man at all. Aggressive, combative, radical. You know those words are going to strike people in a way that's going to turn them off. You know, and I'm no more aggressive in my goals than any man out here. But, you know, they get called, you know, like they've built a good career, steadfast, strong, focused, visionary. And I'm radical. <laughs> you know, and and right. and, wow. you, and so even writers don't even realize what they're passing on. Yeah, I yeah. think sometimes because I've like had conversations with um, journalists here in Memphis about stuff. You know, I have no problem texting these guys. They text me all the time for quotes, so I text them right back. Like, what the hell is this? You know, <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, and they'll be like, I don't see what's wrong with that. I thought that was very nice. I, I'm saying I support you right here. And I said, is that what you just read? You know, um, you know, I mean, there's at least been four or five articles written in our paper about like, again, my electability. 
no one else's electability is questioned, you know, but they can't understand the phenomenon that out of nowhere to them, quote unquote, here I am considered one of the top candidates in a field of 11, the again, highest fundraiser after the incumbent mayor and with a whole platform and a whole team and a whole movement and national endorsements. And instead of giving us our just due and respect, it's got to be like, we've got to unpack this. You know, we've got to figure out what the holes are. Maybe it's just millennials and millennials don't vote. So let's write an article. She, you know, <sighs> nice ideas, but she's a millennial. Millennials don't vote. So Tammy Sawyer is not electable. <laughs> you know, if I read one more word about like, do we have, you know, does my change equal votes? Well, if you're always asking questions, then the voters are going to ask questions. They're going to question, you know, they might be leaning, hey, I was going to vote for Tammy, but wait, the paper's asking, is she viable? Now I'm asking if she's viable. And that might change your vote. Y'all are changing people's minds with your headlines. I just love the space to be able to talk about my experience as a Black woman because so often we are told that we need to be stronger and not complain and don't whine and nobody wants to hear our stories. So to talk to two Black women who are seeing like how the world is working against us and also like it's working, you know, like you all are witnessing it personally in your own work, like it's just thank you for creating a safe space and doing this podcast in a way where like your thoughts I'm hearing and I'm like, yes, that's my question. Yes, that's my thought. Um, when they're not putting our voices on the forefront, even though they want our votes. And so thank you for this space. Yeah. No, thank you so much for running. I mean, you putting yourself out there. You know, I know that you're subject to, you know, it's not all good on the on the trail, you know, on the campaign, on the campaign trail. So thank you for putting yourself out there for us and to lead. And I hope that your run, I want you're going to win. I want you to win. And, you know, tell, you know, so, you know, once you're mayor, you know, thank you for going through this to get to that point. And then also just tell mm-hmm. us, you know, how can people support you? Right. Like, what do you need right now? Well, election day is very soon. So it's Thursday, October 3rd this week. And so right now, you know, just I don't know if people know people in Memphis, but get your folks to vote. So if Memphians are listening, get out and vote and get your people to vote. Um, if people are, you know, outside of Memphis and listening, you know, you know, folks just get them to vote. That's the biggest thing, you know, just continue to spread the word about our campaign with these last few days. And you can also support with donations as we like push towards a very strong election day turnout. You know, we have increased voter turnout. Um, we have the highest turnout since 2007 and, um, early voting. So we're excited about that as we move into election day. So you can support at TammySawyer.com. That's T-A-M-I-S-A-W-Y-E-R.com. That's where you'll see our entire platform, more information about me, and you can also donate. Everything helps. And so just thank you. I just want to say thank you. Um, I'm so honored (laughs) that we'd be able to give you this space to talk about it. It's just been really, um, it's been such a pleasure and I can tell yeah you really love your city and you know everyone wants should want you as their leader and like as their mayor so I'm really excited for you and wishing thank the you best. so much thank you
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Black Women 2020 and you want to support greater representation in political coverage and in the media, please show the Black Women 2020 podcast some love. First off, subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. If you're on iTunes right now, just click the subscribe button and leave us a review. That will help us get more traffic and more listeners. Secondly, you can help support the views of Black women by supporting us on Patreon. The Black Women 2020 podcast is independently produced, and anything you can give will help us. Just visit patreon.com slash bw2020podcast. You can help support us with just a few dollars a month. And all of this information is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening to Black Women 2020, and stay tuned for our next episode.